At some point, the authorities grabbed him and charged him with various things, including forgery, false impersonation, false pretenses, and bigamy. Why Canada, I'm not sure, but anyway, it was close, and so they whipped him over the border. Every few years, he would be arrested somewhere in high drama, and there'd be massive amounts of heroin or marijuana or money or whatever associated with him. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Recently, we talked about bird smugglers and bird smuggling and the rise in the numbers of exotic birds that are being raised in this country very mysteriously because they didn't used to be here and then suddenly they are here. But this is not a new phenomenon. Bird smugglers have got better at it as the authorities have got tougher and better at detecting them. But there's been bird smuggling and animal smuggling out of this country probably since about the time of the second fleet. And a lot of the time, this was hand in glove with other forms of smuggling, other forms of contraband. One of the people that was big on this, it turns out, was a fellow called Donald Roy Tate. Now, Donald Roy Tate uh, when I was a young reporter, was a notorious name. It was a name that kept bobbing up because every few years he would be arrested somewhere in high drama and there'd be massive amounts of heroin or marijuana or money or whatever associated with him, aeroplanes, you name it. He was a very colourful character in a sense. He actually died early in the COVID year of 2020. And it's interesting to see the very low-key death notice that was placed at that time. I'll read it out. It says this, To the entire Tate family, his beloved wife and children, we extend our condolences for entrusting us into our care, Donald, to prepare him with dignity his final time in this world. A private cremation service will be held at the request of the family. Thereafter, a memorial service will be conducted to honour the life of a remarkable man. Now, those words, a remarkable man, do cover a lot of ground because Donald Tate, he came from rural New South Wales, he was born in 1933. By the time he turned 18, graduated from high school, which in itself was a little bit rare in those days for people to stay at high school until 18, only probably the brightest people did. And he got a job as an 18-year-old, as I think as a, a loss assessor with an insurance firm. So he was clearly seen as someone with a brain. But he was one of these people that seemed to use his powers for evil rather than for good. And clearly he was intelligent and able But one of the first things he did, even at that very young age, was manage to pass himself off as a medical doctor. Now, he was always fairly overweight. I think even as a youngster, he was some 100 kilos. And this meant that he might have looked a bit older than he was. He's not a guy that ever looked sort of very boyish or young and pretty. He wasn't that sort of guy. But he was a little bit similar to the American con man who was the inspiration for that excellent film, Catch Me If You Can, because 
Our mate Donald passed himself off as a doctor. He finally got sprung doing something bad. Then he passed himself off as a Royal Australian Air Force pilot officer. He managed to get the uniform from somewhere and put on the uniform and then managed to con his way around in order to somehow profit from the situation, whether he was passing dud checks, which I think was one of his favourite hobbies, buying you know valuables using dud checks, perhaps getting into places where he wouldn't otherwise be able to get, get positions of trust and so on and so forth. He was able to con people. But like a lot of thieves and con men, he wanted to sort of move up through into bigger areas of uh, operations. And it soon became apparent to him by the 1960s that smuggling in and out of the country was the way to go. And he was an early adopter, I understand, of smuggling wildlife, particularly bird life, out of Australia, I think using light planes. I think his trick was to either fly himself or to have pilots that he employed, whichever, early doors. He certainly flew planes himself later on, but early doors he may well have used other pilots. And he would fly wildlife over from the north of Australia into Asia or into New Guinea or somewhere like that in order to smuggle it into places where that people would want to buy it. And he would use the money that he got for the wildlife to buy in bulk amounts of drugs. And he would take the contraband drugs back into Australia and sell it. Now, I think this was something he got away with quite a lot before he hit a hurdle. He was dishonest in so many ways, this man. He married an Australian woman fairly early in life, but later on he met a Jewish woman who was visiting from Israel and he took off with her back to Israel. He married her in Tel Aviv and then subsequently came back to Australia where at some point the authorities grabbed him and charged him with various things, including forgery, false impersonation, false pretenses, and bigamy because he'd married the Israeli woman without the small precaution of first divorcing his first wife. And so old mate Donald Tate was a scallywag and a scamp in every department. And he just kept moving into the bigger and bigger leagues. Now, when he really hit the headlines, and I remember this clearly, he hit the headlines in 1978 because he was flying back into Australia from Asia somewhere, a twin-engine Piper Aero Commander. Now, that is a fair-sized twin-engine plane. And he was coming in over Darwin or near Darwin when it was picked up on the radar. He must have figured that he'd evaded radar, but it was picked up. And then he was ordered to land the plane and a RAF Hercules that was following him ordered him to land and he didn't and he flew out south, uh, you know, across the the great wide spaces of uh, the Northern Territory. He flew south towards Catherine and the RAAF Hercules, which must have been patrolling up over the ocean, I imagine, it followed him for a while but then decided that it was going to run out of fuel and it had to go back to Darwin to refuel. And that's when Donald Tate, who was piloting his own plane at this stage, 
took it into his head that he would crash land his Quinnington Piper on an old, old abandoned wartime strip near Catherine, which actually by this time was nothing more than a sort of a swampy, muddy flat. And he, he crash landed the plane. He got out of it without hurting himself and he attempted to set fire to it so that it would burn the wreckage of the plane and burn what was on it. And what was on it was a staggering amount of cannabis. And what this was, it was dozens and dozens of boxes or cartons packed with what they used to call Buddha sticks. Now, Buddha sticks back in those days were very well known to most people, particularly young people, as a small stick of cannabis or marijuana around which was wound some leaf and this was sort of tied off very neatly, a little bit like a sparkler, you know, the, the sparklers that you light, and it was supposedly strong and high quality and potent and all the rest of it. And Buddha sticks were a very big item of exchange. They commanded quite a bit of money in Australia and they could be bought quite cheaply in parts of Asia, in Thailand and other places where they were grown and prepared and packed. This man Tate had heaps and heaps and heaps of Buddha sticks, as in, you know, a small tonnage. He just had hundreds of kilograms of Buddha sticks packed in, tightly packed in boxes. And when he attempted to burn it after crashing the plane, he more or less crashed it deliberately, it started to burn but not very well. And so when the authorities got to the plane, they were easily able to put it out and about 80% of the Buddha sticks were unburnt. They were there in their boxes and they were very, very good evidence against Donald Roy Tate, who was arrested and he was banged up for quite a while. In fact, at his trial in Darwin that year in 1978, his lawyer, a bloke called Neil Halfpenny, told the court that his client, Donald Tate, had married in Sydney in 1953 and that by 1956 had been convicted and fined for passing false checks, dud, dud checks. he then flown, said his lawyer, to North America where apparently, allegedly, he'd earned an arts degree at the University of Washington in Seattle majoring in psychology. Now, this is a very interesting thing for a man like this to study. While there, he was arrested by the US Immigration Service and deported to Canada. Why Canada, I'm not sure, but anyway, it was close, and so they whipped him over the border. But uh, you can't keep a bad man down. He returned over the border to the United States, where he was allegedly arrested on interstate transportation charges and for overstaying his visa, and he was sentenced to jail. So he goes to jail for a while in the States, but he gets out, and in 1960, he comes back to Sydney. And there, immediately, he's charged with passing false checks and jailed for nine months. It's five years after that that he fell in love with the Jewish citizen, the Israeli lady, and went with her to Israel and was subsequently, of course, charged with bigamy back here in Australia. And so this is the CV that his own lawyer read out to the court uh, when he was tried in Darwin in 1978 for crashing a plane jammed full of 
illicit cannabis. And we'll be back after this. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The backstory to the cannabis run was that in 1970, Tate had moved to Singapore to establish what he called a family travel agency. Well, that would probably just be a front for his nefarious businesses. In 1975, he bought his first aircraft. Obviously, must have been learning to fly at some point in his career. Apart from psychology, he was wanting to be a pilot. He traded it in a year later on the, the good Cessna, which cost $90,000 in 1975. Now, I know I've said things like this in the past in other podcasts, but it's always interesting to show how much money really was. That year, 1975, as a cadet reporter, I earned $3,000. And so this $90,000 Cessna twin-engine aircraft cost 30 times a junior reporter's annual salary. So it was a reasonable amount of money. It would probably now be in the millions. It might be, you know, one and a half or two million, something like that, perhaps. That first Cessna that he bought, he lost it to the Indonesians when they convicted him of drug running in Bali and jailed him for 14 years. But he escaped within a year. This is all his most excellent adventures abroad before 1978. He escaped from an Indonesian jail, you'd think with a little bit of help probably, and he was part of an Australian drug smuggling syndicate. He was very well connected, obviously. At the end of 1977, according to the later trial, the same syndicate that helped him escape approached him to fly these Buddha sticks valued at almost $4 million into the Northern Territory. Now, this is, of course, the trip that brought him undone when he crash-landed the plane after being chased by the RAAF plane. But if you think that was exciting, you ain't heard nothing yet because Donald Tate did love to live dangerously for a, a very plain little fat guy who looked pretty well like a suburban accountant or lawyer who might have been, you know, the treasurer of the local Rotary branch. He was a pretty desperate sort of character and did a lot of desperate stuff. It was during his Darwin trial that he told the court and other people that he'd often flown birds overseas. It was what he called birds out, drugs in, so that he had a payload on every run, not one to miss a chance to make an illicit dollar. He was released from jail here in 1982, which was, I would have thought, a pretty quick turnaround. We often think that Modern criminals get a pretty easy time from the judiciary and that they don't get long sentences and that they used to get longer sentences. But the more we look back at the 80s and 90s, the more we see that people, for whatever reason, 
I believe, got relatively light sentences or were able to shimmy their way out of jail on some pretext. And that is very interesting because when you've got a major drug dealer, a major importer, a serious, serious criminal who's you know, clearly manipulative, heavily involved in the planning, not just a cat's paw for somebody else, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this guy was, by this time, he was in his 40s. So he'd been married twice. He had kids. He was in his 40s. He was no one's fool. So if he did something wrong, he knew exactly what he was doing. And so he was entitled to serve a decent sentence. But he was out by 1982 which does make you wonder whether he knew how to grease the wheels of uh, justice or something inside. It's not unheard of in those days. So he's released from jail in 1982. He goes to Bangkok where he's arrested in 1985 when two kilograms of heroin are found at a Phuket hotel where he was staying. That is a lot of heroin. Very serious charge in any country, but very, very serious in Thailand, where it was a capital offence. He was convicted and he was sentenced to death by firing squad. Tate, naturally enough, protested his innocence over and over. He insisted that he'd only smuggled marijuana, never heroin. The amazing thing is that after two appeals, In February 1988, a Thai judge, who was obviously very well disposed towards our Mr Tate, overturned the conviction and ordered him out of the country. Well, that that wasn't a bad result for a bloke who was going to be shot to death by, you know, a squad of 12 or whatever. They said, right, you can get out of jail now, but you've got to fly home to Australia. Not a bad result at all. You would wonder whether any favours changed hands, whether any money changed hands. You just would wonder what happened. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. In December 1990, Tate was sentenced to 13 years and four months jail in Sydney after being convicted for his part in another $10 million heroin import plan. And the 1990s was pretty well the last time we heard much about Donald Tate. Uh, I think that last sentence sort of settled him a bit. By this stage, he was you know, getting into his middle age born 1933, so by uh, 93 he's 60. By the turn of the century, you know, he's getting towards 70 and he ends up living to the ripe old age of 87. He ends up dying at home in relative comfort. I'm not sure whether he died uh, in financial comfort. 
and whether he left large amounts of money to his grieving family. But that would be interesting to know whether he managed to stash away any of the millions of dollars that he had turned over as a bird smuggler and as a drug smuggler and whether any of it stuck to his fingers or whether, like so many crooks, he died broke. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is Jonty Burton. For my columns, features and more, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule, one word. For advertising inquiries, go to newspodcasts sold at news.com.au. That is all one word, newspodcasts sold. And if you want further information about this episode, links are in the description.